This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Morning, everybody. You can grab a seat. I got to say, as I greeted most of you on the way in this morning, that uh, for a group of people who are overindulged in Turkey and all the trimmings, you look pretty good. You actually sang pretty well. And uh, most of us have probably been through a food coma somewhere this weekend. And uh, it's great that we are at church and great that we get to spend this morning and this part of this weekend together. My name is Ron, and uh, for the next uh, 30 minutes or so, I'm going to be teaching us out of God's Word. And before I get into that, I want to uh, give a special welcome to those of you who are here for the first time because you've come with family and friends. You're in town for the weekend, and you've decided to come to church with your family, and uh, that's a great thing, and maybe in some cases you were drugged here by a family member, and uh, I I would just ask that you would be forgiving if they weren't all that kind in how they drug you here. Um, But I want you to know this. God has an agenda for you being here. He has a purpose, and I prayed this morning earlier and just a few minutes ago in one of the side rooms, I prayed that, um, that you wouldn't leave here without knowing what that agenda is and without allowing God to accomplish that in your life. And you know that same greeting goes to all of us who come here regularly. It's sometimes easy to come to church and just sort of slip into the automatic pilot mode and this is what I do and I do it every Sunday and I'm glad I do it every Sunday and I look forward to it, but if we're not careful, we can also slip into that sort of just cruise control, and and I want to call us out of cruise control this morning because God has an agenda for all of us as well. And I pray that for myself. I don't want to miss any part of what God wants to accomplish in my life this morning. So let's just jump into that. I invite you along on that process, especially those of you who haven't been here before. So you're going to need two things in order to do that well. And the first is you're going to need to take out of your program the teaching notes, and so I encourage you to get those out, take a pencil you find there at your chair and get ready to fill in the blanks and take in and write down some other notes that I'll give you as we go along the way. And then you're going to need this Connect card because there are some application points that we will refer to as we make our way through the teaching this morning. We are, as Kevin said earlier, we are sort of in beginning the home stretch of New Testament challenge. We're approximately two-thirds of the way through New Testament challenge. Uh, By next Sunday, we will be three-quarters of the way through New Testament challenge. And uh, again, for those of you who are new, we are, as a church, we're reading through the entire New Testament. That's the teachings of Jesus and everything written after the teachings of Jesus. It's the latter portion of the Bible. We're reading all the way through it as a church. And uh, that's a great thing because we are... Sort of the word picture God gave me is we are uh, overflowing our minds with God's Word. Because if you're reading those four or five chapters a day, it's impossible to take all that in and fully comprehend it, right? So, But the deal is how refreshing for us to take in more of God's Word than we can possibly comprehend in one setting. Because it's that, it's, it's that word picture of overflowing. And that's what keeps God's Word fresh in our lives. And as we meet together in our small groups throughout the week, 
Uh, some 300 of us are doing that. We're driving those principles and concepts deeper into our lives and getting a better understanding of God's Word. And as we meet together here on Sunday mornings, we're looking at the major themes of the New Testament. In other words, we're focusing our attention on what's most important out of the New Testament. And this morning, we're going to focus on a word that we seldom hear outside of church, but it's a major theme of the New Testament. It's the theme of godliness. And it was front and center in Jesus' teachings, and it was front and center in the minds of the apostles as they wrote the rest of the New Testament. So I'm going to point us just to a core teaching that we will sort of come into and out of throughout the morning. And it's, a, and it's what Paul wrote to a young man that he was personally mentoring as a Christian and as a church leader. And here's what Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He said, Do not waste your time arguing over godless ideas and old wives' tales. I, I'm not even going to touch what old wives' tales might mean. I could get in trouble multiple ways by talking about that. Instead, train yourself to be godly. He goes on to say physical training is good. He starts with stuff that is sort of ideological in its nature. And he says there are godless, godless myths. And then there's this thing in their culture called old wives' tales which once in a while I still hear re referred to in our culture as well. But basically what he's talking about is somebody's latest idea about life that comes from left field that a few people get a hold of and somehow try to order their life around something that doesn't turn out to be true, but it sort of sounds good up front. And even in this area, we could talk about lots of sort of uh, ideas and concepts that have come through the North Bay that a whole bunch of people got really excited about, and 10 years later, nobody's even heard of them. But somebody put a lot of time, a lot of effort, probably invested a lot of money into it, and it just didn't turn out to endure. But after he gets done saying, train yourself to be godly, then he points to something else, and he talks about physical training. He says, physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better, promising benefits in this life and in the life to come. So let's learn some principles out of this. The first thing that we want to learn out of this is when Paul uses the word train yourself to be godly, <clears throat> there's something implied in the word training. And that is that what he's calling us to do is not going to be natural to us. It's going to go against the flow of what we are by nature. Right away, I could hear someone say, well, if it goes against the flow of what we are by nature, should we actually be involved in that? Well, the answer is yes. I know there's this, there's this concept that sort of goes throughout our culture on all sorts of different levels about you don't want to warp yourself. You want to be who you're really meant to be. And yet we all know that if we all lived a life of self-indulgence and we did only what we wanted to do and only what we felt like doing and we ate only what we wanted to eat and we, yes, this is a good weekend to talk about that, okay? What would we end up like? Has anyone ever just sat on the couch and watched TV and got up and said, man, I am physically fit. I don't know what happened while I was on the couch, but something happened. No, it doesn't happen that way. 
If we're going to be anything in life, we're going to have to train. It's not going to come naturally to us. The second thing that we can learn from this is that godliness raises the quality of our lives both here on earth and in eternity. I'm of the opinion that any time I have the opportunity to double dip, other than when it comes to putting chips and carrots and dip that other people are sharing with me, but when I have the opportunity to double dip in life, it's a good thing. It's a great thing. In fact, those who who work in financial planning will talk about developing multiple streams of income. In other words, the more uh, streams of income you have flowing into, into your bank account, the, the less at risk you are because your income's not all coming from one source. And when one is up, the other might be down. When one's down, the other might be up. It's a good thing. Multiple streams of income. Well, multiple streams of benefit is a great thing. You know, if you go out and buy a car, you may love the car, but it's not going to improve your life in eternity because you're only dipping in one life at that point. But when you invest in godliness and you train yourself to be godly, you're dipping into the quality that you could have in this life and you're raising that quality level, but you're also dipping into eternity. That's a good thing, isn't it? That's a great thing. And so Paul wants us to know that right up front. So that brings me to the point of what is godliness anyway? It has got all these benefits to it, but we seldom use the word outside of church. Well, at the risk of oversimplifying it, here's, here's a basic definition. Godliness is the process. And I had you write in the word process because godliness is not an event. You don't come to church and go, man, your church was great. I went ungodly and I came home godly. No, you can get started on it, but it's a process of becoming more and more like God. That's what he's called us to. That's his stated agenda in our lives. We're going to, as we close, we're going to come back to that theme. Um, But I want to go back to the word picture of an athlete. Because the first word that's underlined in your scripture up there is the word train. And I want us to think for just a minute about what training means. Usually, we use it in the field of athletics. And when someone goes into training... They, they go into a period where they are going to repeat certain well-chosen processes that are designed to produce a specific result in their life. Isn't that true? That's what training is. It's repeated processes, and they are carefully chosen processes, and they're designed to produce a specific result. So how can we take that word and apply it to godliness? What are the processes that I should repeat in my life over and over again that will produce the result of godliness? And this morning, there are many in the New Testament, but this morning we're going to hit the big three. Because these are the three that get brought up over and over and over. And all the other sort of processes that that we should be repeating are sort of subsets of these. So let's take a look at the very first one. The first thing that we should be doing is... I must regularly ask God to mold me to be like Him. Let's take a look at Romans chapter 12. The Apostle Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, since God has shown us great mercy, I beg you to offer your lives as a living sacrifice to Him. 
Your offering must be only for God and pleasing to Him, which is the spiritual way for you to worship. Do not change yourselves to be like the people of this world, but be changed within by a new way of thinking. Then you will be able to decide what God wants for you. You will know what is good and pleasing to Him and what is perfect. There's many principles in there, but we're going to draw out two. And we're going to go to that first section that was underlined, which is offer your lives. The first thing that we have to do in order to ask God for for us to be changed or molded or reshaped into who He is, the first thing that we have to do is we have to understand that godliness is a choice. God's never going to force it on us. It's a personal choice. He says, offer. God's never going to come down and take what you don't offer. And he says, offer your lives. In my notes, I wrote, what is it I'm to offer? Because as good as it is to come to church, I want you to notice Paul doesn't say, offer God an hour and a half on Sunday mornings. As good as it is to sit down and read your New Testament challenge and do that in 15 or 20 or 30 minutes, notice God doesn't say offer him 15 to 30 minutes five times a week. There's, there's a whole concept that if I'm going to be godly and that's going to become a characteristic of my life, that I have to offer God all of my life. Now, it doesn't mean that I live all of my life on my knees in prayer or I tote my Bible with me and when I'm walking down the street and people say, good morning, sir, don't bother me, I'm reading my Bible, I'm being godly. That's not what it means. But what it does mean is that there's a totality to my offering. That it's important for me to take my entire life and lay it out there before God. Because if I say, oh, God, make me like you, but I offer him 15 minutes a day, how do you think that's going to work? That's not going to work very well. It takes the whole thing. Secondly, not only is godliness a choice, but godliness is a partnership. I I underlined in your passage of Scripture the words, be changed. You see, God doesn't say to you, I want you to be godly. I want you to learn how to act like me, and I want you to go out and mimic me. No, there's a sense in which we have to be changed. Most of us have lived long enough to know that when we try to change ourselves all by ourselves, that doesn't usually work very well. Because the truth is, most of us, in fact, all of us need help in changing who we are, especially when it comes to being like God. And so there's this sense that when I ask God to make me like Him, I'm asking Him to partner with me. Now, think about this for a minute. Let's just suppose that all of us are Sonoma State University students this morning. And we have a final that's coming up, and instead of studying for the final, we decide to do what most of us would rather do anyway, and that is watch football, party, have fun, stay up late, get up late, do anything but study for the final because that doesn't sound like fun and that might warp me if I make myself study for something I don't want to study for. So we walk into class 
We're getting ready to take the final, and a terrible thought hits us. I might not do well. (laughs) Dear God, would you help me to do well on this test? I really want to pass. What do we think God's going to do? We're going to sit and read a question about which we know nothing, and the magic answer is just going to appear like that. Oh, thanks, God. I know it's A. No, God's never going to. Could God do that? Sure. God's never going to do that. I want you to write this phrase down, okay? Because it's true. There's a sense in which God does not work for us. He works with us. Does that make sense to you? Now, let's go back to that scenario. I'm an SSU student, and I have diligently prepared. Oh, yes, I've watched a little football night, turkey with my family. But somewhere along the way, I took the time to study for this final because I recognized it was important in my life. And still, when I walk in the classroom, I realize that this, this test and what I get on this test is actually very important to me. And I bow my head, and I say, God, would you help me to remember what I've studied? And would you bring to mind concepts that I have worked hard to learn? I think God might be more inclined to answer that prayer. Absolutely. So now let's take that, step out of the realm of being a student, step into the role of being a follower of Jesus who has been called to be like God. If we study and read our Bible to learn about who God is and to get our mind filled with God's Word and God's thoughts and God's activities. And we participate in a life group so that we can be challenged by other people to be more like God. We come to church on Sunday morning and we ask God to speak into our lives. Then when we get on our knees and say, Oh God, make me more like you, God has something to work with. Does that make sense to everybody? Yeah. So I must regularly ask God to mold me to be like Him. And I do that by making sure that I do my part. That godliness is a choice. And I enact that choice. And that godliness is a partnership. And I get on board with God. And I do what He's called me to do. So what might that look like in our lives? Well, this is where you can go to the application part. And there's a little checkbox underneath your notes. And it's also on your Connect card uh, on, the, on the back part where it says apply today's teaching by. Three different times this week, I will ask God to make me like Him. Now, I want to break that out for just a minute for us because it would be really easy for us to Okay, God, in my prayers this morning, make me like you. You heard what Pastor Ron said. That's what I want. That's probably not going to cut it. Okay? Let's take some time to delve into that. Okay? First of all, it might be good for us to confess that this is natural for us. God, I want you to do something in my life that's not natural for me. You know it's not natural for me. I have no trouble being the opposite. I can tell you that. But I have a deep desire in my heart. I want to be like you. I want to learn to think like you think. 
I want to learn to see life like you see life. I want to learn to see eternity like you see eternity. I want to learn to see people like you see people. I want to learn to see priorities like you see priorities. And God, I want to learn how to respond like you respond. I don't want the things that are most important in your life to become the things that are most important in my life. And when I'm tempted to be angry, I want to have your response to those things, not my response. I want to learn how to talk like you talk. I want to learn how to listen like you. You understand? That list is pretty endless, isn't it? So don't just make that a sentence or two. There's plenty in there to pray three times about. Devote a whole prayer to God. I'm here for no other reason. I just want to ask you to make me like you. We'll do that and then do our part. Then we'll see the level of godliness in our lives begin to increase big time. So that's number one. That's the first thing we have to do. Now I want to tell you this. Can we count on God always doing His part? In this partnership, God will always do His part. What's our part? What are the other things that we need to do other than just asking God? And so here they are. Number two is this. I must protect myself from ungodliness. Most of us have figured out that we have somewhere in our nature sort of a natural bent. Not that we're all bent toward ungodliness, but there's definitely a portion of us that bends in that direction. I have to protect myself from ungodliness. And let's take a look at what Paul wrote to the people in the church at Corinth. He said to them, do not be fooled. In other words, wake up. This is a warning sign. Every time the Bible says do not be fooled, what comes right after that is something that could catch us by surprise if we're not careful. And he says, bad friends will ruin good habits. Sometimes I like to watch the, the, the cooking channel. And Bobby Flay does a throwdown. Can you see? Paul just sort of throws it down right there. Bad friends will ruin good habits. There's nothing couched about that. It's just straight up. And he goes on to say, think carefully about what is right and stop sinning. For to your shame I say that some of you don't know God at all. There's a whole message just in that one in that one scripture. You see the point is if we hang around with the wrong people and we don't think about the right things, we will find ourselves in a position to where we're going to church, we're going to life group, but in the end we don't really know God. And friends, I don't care how many times you go to church, how many times you go to a life group, or how many chapters you read out of the Bible, if in the end you don't end up actually knowing God, you wasted it. Is everybody on board with that? That's it. That's the most important thing in life. So now, let's start with a couple of principles we can learn out of that. First is that we're going to tie into that thing of bad friends. And I've prayed about this this morning, that I would say this correctly. But I've also prayed that you would hear it correctly because I believe this is a focal point that God wants many of us in the audience this morning to work on. This is is right where He's going to call us. Because the truth is this. The first thing that we have to do is we have to monitor our relationships. 
Write this down in your margin somewhere in there. Every friendship I have is either lifting me up or pulling me down. Every friendship I have is either lifting me up or pulling me down. Let me give some specific examples. Some of us who are dating are dating a person that is not lifting us up. In fact, they're pulling us down. They're not walking with Christ. In fact, in some cases, they may not even claim to be a Christian. But they're saying to us, no problem, I'll never stand in your way. And we're barging right through that. But the truth is, every relationship in our lives is either drawing us closer to God, or in the end, it will tend to pull us away. And what does Paul say? Don't be fooled. Let's take a different thing. Some of us guys have friends that we like to hang out with. But when we hang out with them, they're not pulling us up. They're not lifting us up. They're not promoting godliness in our lives. They're not drawing us closer to God. They're not challenging us spiritually. In fact, if anything, they're pulling us away. Ladies, same thing is true. I know that there are ladies in this room who have relationships that when they get together with that other lady, it's not lifting them up to God. It's promoting the wrong things in their life. And you know, we could speak for quite a while on what those things are on any of those levels with any of those groups of people. The message that I want to get across to you, okay, is you have to monitor your relationships. Step back. Take an honest look at the people that are in your life. Now, that doesn't mean that, that you're only going, oh, I'll tell you what, there's a person, they're not a good person. Fine, I'm cutting them out of my life. In fact, I'm sending them an email this week. <laughs> you didn't hear me recommend that. I want you to be wise about it. I want you to be kind about it. I want you to be gracious about it. But you have to deal with it. Because Paul says, God says, bad friends ruin good habits. It's very clear. Doesn't do any good for me to get on my knees and say, Oh, God, make me like you. And then go hang out with all the people who don't. Somehow God's going to say, You know, I'm getting a mixed message here. Because before I can build godliness into my life, I have to protect myself from ungodliness. And the first thing I do, can I give you a small. I don't have time to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. All right? I was in the third grade, eight years of age. 
My father's a pastor. I'm going to church multiple times every week. I'm hearing God's word in my life. But as a third grader, I think it's cool to be vulgar. I have suddenly discovered a new use for the middle finger on both hands. And I have learned language that I never learned at home. And I think that somehow real men talk like this and make certain signs. I'm smart enough not to do it to my dad or my mom. But I'm hanging out with kids who are that way. I don't know what happened in a class or in a sermon somewhere as an 8-year-old kid. I heard the message from God. And I knew as an 8-year-old kid I had to go to school and I had to change my friends. That's not easy for an 8-year-old kid. But you know, I did it. I walked in obedience to God and I said, you know, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm changing my friends because these friends are pulling me away from God and I'm doing things that I should not be doing. And the worst thing is, I think it's funny and cool. You know, that's just the faith of an eight-year-old kid. May God give us that kind of faith in this life. Because the next thing we have to do is we have to stop sinning. I know sometimes we go, oh, I can't do that. But I want to tell you the truth. No, you can't just white knuckle it and on your own. But I do want to tell you this. You never just gradually slide out of sin and somehow wake up and go, man, I'm righteous. I don't know how that happened. If you're ever going to get out of sin, you have to draw a line in the sand and say, I'm done. This is the day that I officially stop that behavior. No more excuses. No more one time, one more time won't make any difference. Or I'll get this right in the future. No more compromises. A little bit of this. I'm just going to do better. No. When it comes to sin and when it comes to ungodliness and when it comes to the things that pull us away from God, at some point we have to draw a line in the sand and say, I'm done. This is it. No more. You ever talk to anybody who's been successful in recovery? Okay? And you ask them, you know, how long have you been sober? Do they look at you and go, you know, I don't really know. I sort of just tapered off. No, they all point to one day in their life when they said, this is my last drink. Done. Do you get it? That's the point. You know what Paul said? Stop sinning. Is there anything hard about that that you can't understand? What was the phrase that went around a few years ago? What part of no, don't you understand? That's really what God says. If you want to be like me, you have to protect yourself from ungodliness. And when you have a sin that's repeated in your life over and over and over again, you have to come to a point of decision. You draw a line in the sand and you say, Today, November the 27th, 2011, on Sunday, I'm done. This is my day where I declare war on that sin with God's help. And by God's help, I don't ever do it again.
Let's go to number, th- well, no, let's go to the application point. The application point is pretty simple. I know an area of my life where I need to better protect myself from ungodliness, and I am committing to take specific action on it this week. Can you see the line in the sand? Whether it's a relationship or a behavior, I know what it is. God's brought it to my mind right while I'm speaking. God's brought it to my mind, and I'm going to take specific action this week. Let's go to number three. Number three is I must pursue godly activities. It's not just all on the negative side of the ledger of things that I have to protect. I need to put something in its place. And here's what the Bible says. Here's what Paul wrote to Timothy a couple chapters later. You, Timothy, are a man of God, so run from all these evil things. That's the part we just talked about, right? That's protecting yourself from ungodliness. And then he goes on to say, pursue righteousness and a godly life, along with faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. The fact that Paul uses the word pursue means it's not going to come to you. Got it? You don't pursue things that come to you. You pursue things that might be difficult for you. So he says pursue them. Two things that we can do. Number one, it's very important for us to fill our leisure time with wholesome activities. Finish this statement. Idle hands are... Oh, come on. Finish that statement. Idle hands are... There you go. Most of us have heard that somewhere. I want you to, here's another way to say it. Unscheduled time tends to flow to our point of greatest weakness. Got it? Guys, if you struggle with pornography and you have leisure time, stay away from your computer. Got it? Don't go near it. You go near it, I know what will happen. It will go right to your point of greatest weakness. Okay? So you're going to have to fill your leisure time. You can't just sit there and do nothing. Okay? So choose a godly activity that you're going to go to, a wholesome activity, whenever you're tempted. When you have time and you have leisure time and you're by yourself and no one is around, and that's a time when you would normally go to your computer, you need to go work in the garden and say, whenever that feeling hits, whenever that temptation hits, this is what I'm going to do. It needs to be something you can do readily all the time. It needs to be something, by the way, it needs to be something that doesn't cost a lot of money. Ladies, when you are tempted to get on the phone and talk with someone you shouldn't talk to because every time you get on the phone with them, somehow your your conversation goes toward gossip, you can't say, okay, instead of doing that, I'm going to shop. Okay? That's not going to work. It needs to be something you can do all the time needs to be good and wholesome, and it needs to be something that doesn't cost a lot of money. And friends, we're going to spend a lot of time just applying that across the board in all of our lives. You take that and you work on it in your life, because the truth is, if you try to remove an an ungodly activity and you don't replace it with a godly one, I'll give you a guarantee, the ungodly one will just come back bigger and stronger. The Bible says, don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Second thing we have to do is this, volunteering in a selfless cause. Virtually every Christian I know that's a happy Christian and a productive Christian in this life has two things in their life. They volunteer for one ministry in the church and they volunteer for one cause, one selfless cause in their community. And I want to challenge every single person in our audience this morning to do both of those. 
If you can't point to some ministry in the church that you are a part of, then you need to stand up and be counted and volunteer for God. That's what he calls all of his people to. It's great because what it does is it pursues godliness in your life. When you volunteer in a ministry, you start to get the mind of God. You start to have the activities of God. You start to see other people as God sees them. You start to serve other people in the same way that God serves them. It's one of the greatest things that you can do. But don't just stop by volunteering in a ministry in the church. God wants you to take the church out into the community and be the church and volunteer for a selfless cause out in the community. Now, before I move into the, the application points, I want to talk to you about a ministry in this church that you could do, that anybody could do. It requires no Bible knowledge. doesn't require any special skills. It just requires a desire to serve. We have, we have a ministry in our church called First Impressions. It's a great ministry. These are the people who come. They set up the chairs to make sure that the chairs are all in order and there's a pencil and a sharpened pencil in every chair. And they make sure that everything is ready. They sort of ask, act like hosts for the church. Some of them go out and fill out name tags. And go, oh, man, I can never do that. I can never remember people's names. Go fill out name tags. You'll do better. That's one of the best ways you could learn people's names. Yeah. Oh, I'm scared to death of people. Go fill out name tags. It's the best way to learn how to overcome that fear. You'll find out nobody out there bit. You know, I've served in this church now for 13 years. No one's ever been bit on our patio. It's never happened. It just doesn't, okay? It's a great way that you can serve. And there's a place on your, on your Connect card. If, this is such a great entry-level service. And it says, I would like to get connected by, and the very first thing is making people feel welcome by being an usher or a greeter. That's what our first impressions ministry is. And so I want to challenge you with that. That's a great thing, and that ministry always could use more people. So there you go. There's a place. Now let's go to the application part points. I will commit myself to a godly activity that I will consciously turn to when I'm tempted to sin. I spoke to you about that earlier. Um, think about it. If God's calling you to that, check that. And then the second one is, I will volunteer for one ministry in the church and one uh, cause, selfless cause in our community. As we close, let me give you a closing thought. The thought's a very simple one. But before I give you the thought, I want to ask you a question. Because it was a question, frankly, that I I hadn't thought of in my own life, and it really challenged me this week. It's easy for me to think of God as my father, but it's far more challenging for me to think of God as my dad. You say, that's kind of silly, aren't they the same? No. Father is formal. Dad is personal. I don't have time to give you all the theology behind it, but the point is we have been invited by God to call him dad. And the whole concept of godliness could be wrapped up in one simple phrase. And it's our closing thought. I want to be just like you.
that. What's that look like in real life? I want to read you an excerpt from a birthday card that I got from one of my children three months ago. I am very appreciative of the influence you have had on me, and I often reflect about how blessed I am to have had you as my mentor. It's easy for me to make assumptions about some of the, quote, givens in life, but I need to be reminded sometimes that my foundation was extraordinary. In sitting to write to you, I'm reminded that my life has been blessed through yours. Thank you for your example of faith, for the emphasis you placed on Christ in my life. It inspires me as a parent and challenges me as a husband and a man. May God bless all of us with more years of your example. I give you that little window into my life because if you're a father and one of your children came up to you and said, Dad, you know what I want to be in life? I want to be just like you. What would that do for your heart? If you're a mother or you're not married yet, put yourself in those shoes. If you've got a child that came up and said, I want to be just like you. It's the greatest thing any father, any mother, or any person could ever hear in this life. And I'm convinced that it's the message our Heavenly Father wants to hear from us. Dad. I want to be just like you. So we move into a time of communion. I want us to be cognizant of that because it's the real message of communion. I said a while ago, one of the greatest things we could do is volunteer for a selfless cause. Friends, there was no greater selfless cause in eternity than for God to get up from his throne and come to earth so he could give his life so that you and I could be saved. And if we could project ourselves into a situation, think about this. You're a teenager. You're in your early 20s. You've lived long enough to have been hurt. You've lived long enough to have experienced a loss in this life. You've lived long enough to know the pain and the sorrow of of great loss. And you're in a situation where your life is in danger. And you watch your father come in. And put his life at risk to save yours. And in the process of saving your life, he loses his own. And you are saddened to your core that you lost your father. But you know you lost your father in an effort to save your own life. How would you think about your dad for the rest of your life? Every year that date came around, you would do something to remind yourself that if it weren't for my dad, I wouldn't be here. He gave his life so I could live. How would you respond if you heard somebody talking negatively about your dad? There'd be something inside you that would say, but you don't know him. Because if you know him, Like I know him, you wouldn't think that. 
So in that setting, you take him for our father, our dad, got up off his throne. And when he saw we were in trouble, he came to earth and he gave his life. He gave it up so that we could live. And in communion, we send him a message. And the message is simply, Dad, I want to be just like you. I want to live that unselfish life, that godly life. Let's pray. Lord, as we take communion, we offer our lives to you. And we say, Dad, I want to be just like you. Thank you for showing us the path. We offer ourselves in your name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.